I want you to just imagine it, that you were Orville Wright on that first flight. No one had ever flown, ever, in the millions of years of human history, and hundreds had tried. Many were trying at this very moment, and neither the geniuses of history nor the titanic governments and corporations of modernity had achieved it. And yet here you were, lying face down on a machine that you and your brother and your friend Charlie had built with your bare hands. And you were flying. You were flying. You were alone on top of the world, a one of one, experiencing something that no one else in the history of mankind could say that they had experienced. Imagine how you would feel. Imagine the euphoria, both from the physical sensation of flying and from knowing that you, you, had done the impossible. The flight lasted less than 20 seconds, and then Orville Wright landed somewhat roughly in the North Carolina sand. Few were around to witness it. The Wright brothers had tried to invite the locals, but only a few had come. Afterwards, they immediately went to send telegrams to all the major newspapers, letting them know about the breakthrough that had just occurred. But no one believed them. From the New York Times to the Washington Post, even to their local Dayton newspapers, no one carried the story. And so, as Orville and Wilbur Wright took the train home to Dayton, they were something like a secret society. I imagine they must have talked in conspiratorial tones about what the future held, what improvements they would make, and what new tests they would conduct. The world might not know, might not believe what had happened, but the brothers knew. And as they rode that train, their minds turned again and again to that secret that only they knew, that man could fly. Hello, and welcome to How to Take Over the World. This is Ben Wilson. Today's episode is about the Wright brothers, Wilbur and Orville Wright, the fathers of flight. They were the first men to fly and the inventors of the airplane. It's truly one of the great stories of innovation, I think. There's this quote that you might have heard. Uh, Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. And that is sort of the touchy-feely, feel-good, philanthropic side of what we're going to talk about today. But the Wright Brothers story is sort of the technological flip side of that quote. You know, Never doubt that a couple of young men in their garage can move technology forward. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. And that's one thing I love about this story. It's two committed, hardworking guys with no backing and no connections against the world. No one thought they could do it. And I closed this book after finishing it. And there are a few books that have left me with such a strong conviction that anything is possible with enough determined effort. And also, you know, they were hardworking and committed, but there's some more to it than that. There had been a lot of really hard workers who had tried to solve the problem of human flight previous to them, previous to the Wright brothers, and none of them had been able to crack it. And one of the things you see when you study this story is that the Wright brothers approached and framed the problem differently. And that's what allowed them to succeed. And so I think it's a masterclass in that as well of Framing the problem is really framing the solution, is finding the solution. And so if you can 
understand a problem correctly, it leads to amazing insights and innovations. And so I learned a ton studying this. I think you will as well. My main source for this episode is the excellent biography, Wright Brothers by David McCullough. If you'd like to purchase it, use the link in the show notes and you'll be supporting the show. And just as a reminder, before we get into it, this is part one. I will be releasing a part two shortly, and then also an end notes episode for the story as well. And if you would like to hear that episode, the end notes, then go to the link in the show notes and subscribe to how to take over the world premium, where you will get all my end notes episodes, all future AMA episodes, all future bonus and mini episodes, and all the great content that is coming out from how to take over the world. So with all that said, let's dive in and hear the story of the Wright brothers after this quick break. It all began with a toy. Milton Wright was a bishop, a fairly high-ranking clergyman for the Church of the United Brethren in Christ, and he traveled often for work and often brought gifts back for his children. And this time, he brought back a small helicopter. You wound the rubber band and let it go, and the little wooden propellers carried it through the air. Look here, boys, said the bishop, concealing it in his hands. When he let go, it flew to the ceiling, and a dream was born. Later, when Orville was in first grade, his teacher caught him tinkering with bits of wood at his desk. She asked him what he was doing, and he told her he was building a machine like the one that he and his brother would fly someday. By his brother, he meant Wilbur. They had two older brothers and a sister, but Wilbur and Orville were inseparable. They acted similarly, thought similarly, and always did things together. Their father called them as inseparable as twins and indispensable to one another. Though born four years apart, they were indeed a lot like twins. Throughout their life, they would work together, live together, and in later years, they would even maintain a joint bank account. They were close with the rest of their family, too. It was a very tight-knit family. Wilbur and Orville would call Dayton, Ohio home for their entire lives. Wilbur would later say, If I were giving a young man advice as to how he might succeed in life, I would say to him, pick out a good father and mother and begin life in Ohio. And in hearing about this happy family life that they had as children, gives me a little bit of encouragement and hope, I guess. It reminds me of a speaking engagement I did last year in front of a bunch of very successful entrepreneurs. And I did a panel and the MC asked us what the hardest lesson was that we had learned from our fathers. And the first person on the panel said, don't do cocaine because his father had been a coke addict. And then all of these people, all these entrepreneurs start talking about how their horrible fathers had spurred them to success in life because they wanted to prove them wrong or escape their shadow or something like that. And I was just thinking, man, am I at a disadvantage in life because I had a loving father and mother? And all of a sudden, I'm feeling very alone up there. I'm just like, I don't have any hard lessons from my dad. So it's nice to see from the Wright brothers that you can have success, even if you have a supportive and loving family, as weird as that sounds. So Wilbur was born in 1867 and Orville was born in 1871. They're growing up at an interesting time. They grew up in the era of horses and buggies, saw early automobiles when they were young men. And then, of course, they were pioneers in flight. Orville, the younger of the two, lived to see supersonic flight. And if he had lived old enough, he'd lived to about 98. He would have lived to see the moon landing, which is always amazing to me to think about. For thousands of years, humans got around either on foot or on horse, maybe in a wagon or cart, but essentially by biological locomotion. And then in a single lifetime, we went from horses to the moon landing. That's just amazing to think how quickly that technology progressed. Anyway, the point is, the Wright brothers grew up without running water, plumbing, or electricity. Nevertheless, it was a good middle-class upbringing in a booming manufacturing town in Dayton. 
Their father was intellectually curious. He had a larger than normal library and encouraged his sons to read and experiment. And their mother was actually where they got their engineering genius from. Her father was a mechanic and engineer, and she had that kind of mind. She was brilliant at fixing things and at mechanical problems. Of the two, Orville was the more entrepreneurial. He began making kites at age 10 for fun and then started to sell them. And then while in high school, he got an enthusiasm for newspapers and he used scrap metal and discarded materials, including an unused tombstone to make a homemade printing press. Wilbur, of course, eventually joined the printing business and they started their own newspaper business, which did modestly well for a while. Wilbur was the more serious and intellectual of the two. In fact, while they were both very smart, very intelligent, if you had to pick one to say, well, that's a real genius, it was Wilbur. Wilbur was unbelievably intelligent, but he was a classic kind of shy, lost in the clouds thinker of a boy. David McCullough in his biography writes, such were Wilbur's powers of concentration that to some he seemed a little strange. He could cut himself off from everyone. And one of his boyhood classmates wrote, the strongest impression one gets of Wilbur Wright is of a man who lives largely in a world of his own. He said it was common to see him leave the house only to return five minutes later because he had forgotten his hat. And I said thinker and not nerd because Wilbur was not just a nerd. He excelled at everything. If you look at a picture of him, he doesn't look like a nerd to me. He's got a pretty impressive jaw. And indeed, he was a star athlete, especially at football, skating, and gymnastics. And so between his quick mind and his impressive athletic skill, there was talk of him going to Yale. But that all ended in 1885 when he's 18 years old. So nearing the end of high school, right about when he should start be thinking about going to college, uh, he's playing hockey on a frozen lake when a neighborhood thug whacks him in the face with a hockey stick and it knocks out his front teeth. And in retrospect, it's pretty clear that he had a pretty severe concussion and that sends him into a downward spiral of depression that lasts for years. And by the way, this thug who whacks him, the guy went on to be a notorious murderer. So he's like a real bad character. And so I guess it was totally uncalled for, uh, not in the play of game, just kept, basically assaults the guy in the middle of a hockey game. And so for the next three years, Wilbur is more or less homebound as he regains his confidence after this very traumatic assault. It's also probably worsened by the fact that during this time, his mom contracts tuberculosis. And so, as I said, they're a very tight-knit family. Wilbur and Orville are both very attached to both of their parents. And so Wilbur goes all out to take care of her while she has tuberculosis. Other than taking care of his mother, the other thing that consumes his time during this kind of down and out period is reading. McCullough says of the Wright household, quote, everyone in the house read all the time. And that certainly seems to be true. Uh, the bishop kept an unusually large library for the time, and it included Dickens, Washington Irving, Hawthorne, Mark Twain, a complete set of the works of Sir Walter Scott, the poems of Virgil, Plutarch's Lives, Milton's Paradise Lost, Boswell's Life of Johnson, Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. So it's very, very eclectic, um, and very broad. You know, the boys grow up as something of sort of mechanical geniuses. They're very smart that way, but they know much more than that. They know literature, they know religion, they know history, they know all these things. And being widely read is something that would come back to benefit Wilbur greatly. Well, in 1889, Mrs. Wright dies. And this is a very serious hardship on the family. But paradoxically, it seems to set Wilbur free. As I said, he had kind of fixated on her and her illness and being able to help her. So he didn't really pursue any sort of career or vocation while she was sick. 
but without needing to care for his bedridden mother, Wilbur could close the book on the recluse chapter of his life and move forward with initially the printing business and then with a new obsession, which he and Orville would discover four years later in 1893. In the 1890s, bicycle mania hit the United States. The 1870s and 1880s had seen a number of novelty bikes for enthusiasts. And you've probably seen pictures of these. Um, Think of the ones with the huge front wheel and that one tiny back wheel. That's the kind of stuff you're talking about in the 1870s and 80s. And it's not very practical and doesn't get widespread use. But in the late 1880s, and especially in the 1890s, the safety bicycle started to take off. And that's a bike, as we think of it today, two wheels of roughly the same size and a lower seat so that a person can put their feet on the ground when they're not riding the bike. And so once this bike starts to get big, it's more accessible to more people and it becomes a huge craze. And bicycle mania hits not only Dayton, but the right household. Orville is the one who catches the fever. Between the two brothers, you can kind of think of Orville as the heart and Wilbur as the brain. I mean, that's a little unfair because Orville was also very intelligent. Wilbur was also very enthusiastic. But of the two, Orville was the more obsessive and Wilbur was the greater genius. And so it's always Orville who's like, oh, we're really into printing now. We're really into kites. Now we're really into bicycles. And by the way, I think there's a lesson there. In order to be really successful as an entrepreneur, you have to have this obsession, but you also have to be really talented and intelligent. And so if you recognize in yourself that you've got one of these things, but not the other, it's good to find someone who compliments you. You know, the brothers, neither one of them could have accomplished the feat of a flight on their own. As intelligent as Wilbur was, if it wasn't for Orville's obsession and drive to figure this out, it just never would have happened. And so if you realize, you know what, I am someone who's really obsessive and can really focus in on something like that, but I'm just not a top 1% performer, then go find someone like that and partner with them. Conversely, if you know, you know, I am that talented, I am that smart, but I'm not that driven. I'm not the kind of person who's going to obsess about something. Go find someone that you can partner with who does have that sort of drive and ambition and obsession. And I think that's what you have to do if you don't have both of these things, both the intelligence and the obsession, and you want to be a very successful entrepreneur. So in 1893, Wilbur and Orville opened their own small bicycle business, the Right Cycle Exchange, selling and repairing bicycles only a short walk from their house. And the brothers are very hardworking, very smart, very honest. They're mechanically minded. So it's not a surprise that the business takes off. And in virtually no time, business was so good that they had to move down the street into larger quarters. But after roughly a year, they do go through some rough times. This bicycle mania goes through the classic hype cycle. If you haven't heard of that, it's this concept popularized by the research firm Gartner, and it describes five phases of a new technology. So first there is the technology trigger. Something gets invented. Then there is the peak of inflated expectations. And so that is when you see a mania, just blind optimism, completely divorced from reality. And then you have a crash ending in what Gartner calls the trough of disillusionment. And then it slopes gently back up with what is called the slope of enlightenment into what is called the plateau of productivity. So you can think of the internet as the classic example of this. You have a technology trigger in the early 90s, which is the invention of the internet. And then in the mid to late 90s, you have the peak of inflated expectations where every internet startup is getting funded no matter how ridiculous. And then you have the dot-com bust, the recession, what Gartner calls the trough of disillusionment. And 
during the dot-com bubble, at this time, people are like, actually, the internet is not very valuable. <laughs> it doesn't make that much of a difference, which is clearly not true. People get overly pessimistic. And then over the next 10 years, you have the slope of enlightenment as people realize, no, there are real use cases here to the internet ending in the plateau of productivity where it's just a very useful, productive part of life that there is no positive or negative hype around. It's just productive, which is still the case. I don't know if you've heard, but people still use the internet. Well, so bicycles go through this exact process. There's a craze and then there is a huge bust and the Wright brothers almost go out of business during the bust during this recession, but things recover and reach this plateau of productivity. And that trough is actually good in a way because it separates the fakers from those who know what they're talking about and are really committed to the craft. And the rights are really, really good, right? So when it comes out of this recession, business actually is now better than ever because the hobbyists, the casuals, they're now out of it. They're not in it anymore. So there's less competition and bigger profits. So in 1895, they move once again into a bigger facility and start manufacturing their own bicycles rather than just repairing and reselling other bicycles. And the advertisement for their first bicycle, it's called the Van Cleave, gives you a peek into their personalities, I think. And here's what it says, in part. The advertisement says of the Van Cleave, quote, it will have large tubing, high frame, tool steel bearings, needle wire spokes, narrow tread, and every feature of an up-to-date bicycle. Its weight will be about 20 pounds. We are very certain that no wheel on the market will run easier or wear longer than this one. And we will guarantee it in the most unqualified manner. And that's just so right, brothers. It's very straightforward. It's kind of workmanlike, not a ton of flash or pizzazz. The thing about innovators is sometimes they are flashy. Sometimes you get the Steve Jobs, but sometimes innovators are not really trying to innovate. They're just trying to do everything right. And that describes the Wright brothers perfectly. Uh, you know, Steve Jobs did say, be a yardstick of quality. Some people aren't used to an environment where excellence is expected. And that pretty well describes the rights. They did everything right. They were a yardstick of quality and they expected excellence. So their bicycles are kind of innovative. Uh, not in any huge feature that you can point to, but just they're super high quality. They work really well. And so they sell amazingly and they're making tons of profits off it. So the business is throwing off some really attractive profits that are making them wealthy, not mega rich, but they're doing very well for themselves. And then in 1896, they have another, what you might call a fortunate accident, one that would set them down the road of their ultimate destiny. Otto Lilienthal was a German engineer and inventor, and he loved the idea of flight. As a boy, he studied birds with his brother and together, they made strap-on wings and attempted to fly with them. And while the wings did not work out, eventually Lilenthal was able to create functional gliders. And as an engineer, he was pretty studied, pretty scientific about how he engineered these gliders. And so he's conducting studies on the wings, how big they should be, what angle they should be at, things like that. Uh, he said, it is our duty not to rest until we have attained a perfect scientific conception of the problem of flight. And he jumped from hills that were 30 and even 50 feet high in order to experiment and prove the engineering of his gliders. And he's not truly flying. He, he's just gliding, but he's gliding further than anyone ever has before. And this is a, a huge sensation at the time. And then on August 9th, 1896, he made four successful glides, the longest he'd ever made of almost 900 feet. But he then goes for a fateful fifth attempt, a fifth glide. 
And by some accounts, someone tried to talk him out of it, out of doing this fifth jump. And his last words were, sacrifices must be made. And at some point during his descent on this fifth jump, Lilenthal's glider pitched downward and he was unable to pull out of a 50-foot freefall. The crash broke his back and ultimately killed him. At almost exactly the same time, on the other side of the world, Orville Wright contracted typhoid. And as he lay in bed, weak and delirious with a 105-degree fever, Wilbur resumed the role of caretaker that he had taken with his sick mother. In particular, Wilbur spent considerable time reading to his brother while he rested in bed. And one day, Wilbur read to him a newspaper article about Lilenthal's death. The fascination with flight that had affected the Wright brothers as young boys now returned even stronger after reading Lilenthal's story. And so they start doing more research. They studied the lives and work of other aviation pioneers as well, including the French experimenter L.P. Millard. Again, if you've listened to this podcast for a few episodes, you know I hate French pronunciations, and there's a number of them in this podcast, so I apologize in advance. But this guy Millard, he wrote a book on flight, and in it he warned that one could be entirely overtaken by solving the problem of flight. He wrote, When once the idea has invaded the brain, it possesses it exclusively. Which certainly proved true for the Wright brothers. I think possession is a good way to think about their relationship to flying after this period. They are men possessed. They are totally obsessed. Um, They still run the bicycle business because they have to. But all of their free thoughts are bent towards flight. Can we come up with a flying machine? The first practical step comes on Tuesday, May 30th. 1899, Wilbur writes a letter to the Smithsonian Institution in Washington. It reads in part, I have been interested in the problem of mechanical and human flight ever since, as a boy, I constructed a number of bats of various sizes after the style of Cayley's and Pinod's machines. My observations since have only convinced me more firmly that human flight is possible and practicable. I am about to begin a systematic study of the subject in preparation for practical work to which I expect to devote what time I can spare from my regular business. I wish to obtain such papers as the Smithsonian Institution has published on the subject, and, if possible, a list of other works in print in the English language. I am an enthusiast, but not a crank in the sense that I have some pet theories as to the proper construction of a flying machine. And it's interesting that he specifically addresses the issue of crankery. Flight in the 1890s was a little bit like, I don't know exactly what to compare it to, thing that comes to my mind is cold fusion. So there are many brilliant people working on the idea of fusion power right now, but there are also a lot of cranks. And most of the time when you hear about fusion power, cold fusion, practical fusion, it's either crankery or an exaggeration. It hasn't happened yet. But like I said, there are smart people working on fusion. And at the time there were smart people working on flight as well. There was Lilenthal and Millard who have mentioned But also Thomas Edison, Alexander Graham Bell were both working on it. Hiram Maxim, an American British inventor. uh, He's best known for inventing the machine gun, essentially. And he reportedly spent $100,000, ton of money back then, of his own money on a giant steam-powered pilotless flying machine, only to see it crash in attempting to take off. Uh, The French government had spent a similar amount, almost $100,000, on a steam-powered flying machine built by a French electrical engineer. Similarly, that does not work. And the head of the Smithsonian himself, to whom Wilbur had just written, 
was also working on constructing a flying machine. His name was Samuel Langley. And so Langley is well disposed towards thinking, okay, maybe this guy is not an idiot or a crank. So he's very helpful and sends a bunch of information from the Smithsonian, which helps the brothers get started. And more than anything, gives them the confidence to get started. That they're like, okay, this gives us something to start with. Here's some schematics that we can kind of base our stuff on and try and improve on. And I think this is a really good approach. Why recreate the wheel? Or I guess the wings in this case. Let's learn what we can from other people's experiments. And so they get a bunch of data from Langley and from a bunch of other early flyers like Lilienthal and from this guy, Octave Chanute, another Frenchman, and others. They also start gathering data from even more experienced flyers from birds. Wilbur Wright actually makes a huge breakthrough in flight almost immediately before doing any real experiments just from observing birds. I find it very impressive, but he's watching birds fly and he's, it reminds me of Da Vinci who also loved watching birds. And the two of them just have amazing eyes to observe things that others, I mean, you see it, but you don't really notice it, right? And so the thing that he notices that we all see, but he notices is that birds shorten one wing when they want to roll one way or the other. So rather than literally kind of turning their bodies or shifting their weight, they just kind of curve one wing and that causes them to roll. And so Wilbur says, what if we were to have a lever that could fold down or twist the very edge of the wing in order to roll the plane one way or another? And he calls that wing warping. And so they test this with a miniature flyer. It's actually a kite. Its wingspan is only five feet and it's made with bamboo and paper. And they send it up in the wind. They have a little lever, they pull it, warp the wings, and wouldn't you know it, it works. They twist one side up, which exposes more surface area, generating more lift. So one wing lifts up and consequently the other one dips, turning the kite to one side in a little rolling motion. And so by using this wing warping, they can move the kite back and forth. Now, there's another lesson that the brothers took from the birds, and I think it's absolutely genius. They're looking at birds who glide and float on the wind and realize, look at how often they move their wings. They are just constantly making micro adjustments to account for the wind and keep themselves stable. And again, this is something that all of us see, but none of us notice, right? They're just birds are constantly in motion, even when they are just floating on the wind, making all these little micro adjustments. And so the Wright brothers realize that the primary problem of flight is not propulsion or lift. It is control. Lilienthal, that German flyer who died, had demonstrated that gliding on the wind is actually very doable. But controlling yourself once you're there is very hard, which is ultimately what led to his death. And so the brothers realize we don't have to focus so much on figuring out the power element of it or the wing element of it. Although, of course, they do. They have to figure out lift and, and do that stuff. But they realize the main thing we're going to have to figure out is how to control ourselves, how to make all these little micro adjustments, these little turns and adjustments that birds make while we're in the air. And so the brothers start to crunch the numbers on Lilienthal's experiments, and they realize that in the five years that he was testing gliders, Lilienthal had only spent a grand total of five hours in the air, which I guess makes sense, right? You're gliding and you're jumping off a 50-foot hill, and so that only lasts for a couple minutes at most. And so how many times are you going to do that, right? So five hours in the air is all he spent. So you can see early on, they have a very good theory of how to crack the problem of flight. We have three problems. 
lift, propulsion, and stability. Or in other words, the wings, the engine, and the controls. And their theory, which is different from others, is that of those three, the controls are actually the most difficult to solve. And in order to solve it, they're going to have to spend a lot of time in the air learning how to pilot an airplane. So they've broken down the problem already and have a very strong theory around it. And this turns out to be a genius approach. And the way they're going to approach it is they're going to say, hey, let's get together the minimum airplane that we can get. You know, MVP, minimum viable product. That's a, a big idea in, in business these days. That Instead of building the full features of a product, just build the bare bones minimum viable product and then put it out there, get customer feedback, and then add features as time goes on. Well, similarly for them, they're not going to construct a whole big airplane. They're going to do the minimum to get themselves in the air and then test it and really get used to being in the air. And that's different from everyone else. All their competitors build these whole flying apparatuses and then unveil them in a big test flight, which inevitably fails. But the brothers are going to start with the bare bones. And that means testing kites and gliders before trying to build an engine and an actual airplane. And they're going to test it all in secret. We'll hear more about that testing after this quick break. In order to perform the repetitive flights necessary to master flying, the brothers needed to find a place to conduct their test flights. The ideal spot would have strong, steady winds and ideally a soft place to land. To find the right place, Wilbur wrote to the United States Weather Bureau in Washington about prevailing winds around the country. The Weather Bureau provided extensive records of monthly wind velocities at more than 100 stations. A village in a remote corner of North Carolina called Kitty Hawk caught his eye. It had very consistent strong winds and plenty of soft sand to land on. It was also small and completely isolated, but the brothers didn't need a luxury vacation with lots of hotels, so that was fine by them. Once the location was established, the brothers needed to complete the glider that they would use and transport it from Dayton to Kitty Hawk, nearly 700 miles. They built a full-size glider with a wingspan of 18 feet at a cost of $15, which they planned to reassemble at Kitty Hawk. Kitty Hawk, again, was very remote at the time, like the end of the world. It's on the Outer Banks, so it's like this little strip of islands just off the coast of North Carolina. There was no bridge access. So the only way to get there was via a ferry or a boat. They end up taking a little skiff that is in such bad shape that they have to bail water the entire time that they're sailing in order to stay afloat. When the brothers did finally get there, they found a small village of about 50 houses, nearly all of them belonging to fishermen. And so they get there, they get set up. Uh, the fishermen are kind of skeptical. <laughs> I think they're these crazy guys, but they are helpful. And one of them allows the brothers to crash in a spare room, in his living room, essentially. And so now that they're there, what are they going to do? Wilbur wrote about kind of their plans. He said, I have my machine nearly finished. It does not have a motor and is not expected to fly in any true sense of the word. My idea is merely to experiment and practice with a view of solving the problem of equilibrium. I have plans which I hope to find much in advance with the methods tried by previous experimenters. Once a machine is under proper control under all conditions, the motor problem will be quickly solved. A failure of a motor will then mean simply a slow descent and safe landing instead of a disastrous fall. So in other words, it's kind of going back to what we said. He's optimizing for experimentation and repetition. So everyone else who's flying 
is trying to figure out the motor. And they're like, if this is a locomotion issue, right? Which makes sense if you think about it. I mean, when you think about trying to fly, if I say flap your arms and fly, the primary thing you think of is not the fact that you wouldn't be able to control yourself, but the fact that you don't have the locomotion to get into the air. But so he's trying to figure out a method that will allow him to stay in the air long enough to not crash and to learn how to fly. And so this is something that the brothers thought a lot about was risk mitigation. Aside from not wanting to die, risk for risk's sake, they realized that Lilenthal had only been in the air for five hours before he died. And so Wilbur says, quote, the man who wishes to keep at the problem long enough to really learn anything positive must not take dangerous risks. Carelessness and overconfidence are usually more dangerous than deliberately accepted risks. So, of course, some risks were necessary. This was flying and they would have crashes, many crashes, but they were no daredevils out to perform stunts and they never would be. So this first summer, they are at first flying what is essentially a manned kite and they're not flying it very high. They're just letting the wind lift them about 20 feet off the ground and then they're trying to learn to control the machine in various ways and learn to turn it up and down and, and just get familiar with being in the air and manning this machine. In the first week, they take the machine out on three days for two to four hours at a time. So within that first week, they have spent more time in the air than Lilenthal did in five years. And that should tell you how different their approach was from Lilenthal and frankly, from everyone else who was more like Lilenthal. My guess would be that in their first two weeks in Kitty Hawk, they probably spent more time in the air than all other aviation pioneers at the time combined. And so it's great in Kitty Hawk. Things are going well. The experiments are going well. They, day after day, are just learning a ton about how to properly steer this thing. They're constantly tinkering with the machine itself and making small adjustments. And the whole time, they're roughing it. First, they stay in that spare room uh, that I mentioned, and then they get a tent. And in terms of food, they subsist on eggs, tomatoes, and hot biscuits, which they can get from the locals. And it certainly wasn't very comfortable, but Orville would say that it was the happiest time they had ever known. And you can imagine why. Just you and the boys camping out on the beach and figuring out how to fly. I mean, it doesn't sound too bad to me. And when they're not flying, they are taking flying lessons from the birds. One of the locals, John T. Daniels, later recounted, quote, We couldn't help thinking they were just a pair of poor nuts. They'd stand on the beach for hours at a time, just looking at the gulls flying, soaring, dipping. They would watch them and imitate the movements of their wings with their arms and hands. They could imitate every movement of the wing. We thought they were crazy, but we just had to admire the way they could move their arms this way and that and bend their elbows and wrist bones up and down, just like the birds. <laughs> I think that's an amazing image to think of Wilbur and Orville running around on the beach, you know, mimicking the seagulls and tilting their elbows and wrists up and down to, to fly with their arms. But of course, the locals also see another side of them as well. They see their work. John T. Daniels also wrote that the Wright brothers were, quote, two of the workingest boys. And when they worked, they worked. They had their whole heart and soul in what they were doing. And that's true. That was one of their calling cards. One of the things that Wilbur and Orville always prided themselves on was diligence, was just continually working hard. So finally, toward the end of their trip, which is only about a month long, they do some gliding off of some sand dunes at an area called Kill Devil Hills. So now instead of it being a kite that they're holding down with ropes, they're going to go to the top of some hills and, um, you know, essentially run and jump and get pushed off and, and glide. 
And these glides go for 300 and 400 feet and reach speeds of up to 30 miles per hour. And their approach is working. You know, flying as a kite is much less dangerous and lets them figure out how to control this machine. And so now when they're gliding, it's not as dangerous because they know how to control their flyer. And overall, it's a success. They get some very valuable data, have a good time, and find out a lot about their current machine and how it can be improved. And then at the end of October, they go back to Dayton to man the bike shop. And this is their routine for the next few years. They spend a couple of months in the summer or fall sometimes in Kitty Hawk in North Carolina and then return to Dayton, Ohio to man the bike shop for the rest of the year. So the next year in 1901, they return to Kitty Hawk again. And this time their journey is cursed. I mean, really reading about it, you start to think, man, what, what God or demon did these guys offend to, to make it turn out this way? So when they arrive, they are immediately met by a scourge of biblical proportions, a swarm of mosquitoes so thick that at times it begins to kind of blot out the sun. Orville said that the agonies of typhoid fever were as nothing compared to the mosquitoes. He said, and this is a quote, the sand and grass and trees and hills and everything was fairly covered with them. They chewed us clear through our underwear and socks. Lumps began swelling up all over my body like hen's eggs. We attempted to escape by going to bed, which we did a little after five o'clock. We put our cots out under the awnings and wrapped up in blankets with only our noses protruding from the folds thus exposing the least possible surface to attack. But then he explains that it was so hot because, you know, it's July in North Carolina that they would get so overheated, they would have to take off the blankets. But as soon as they did, the mosquitoes would swarm and attack and then they would have to retreat under the blankets once again. And they would just cycle through this all night, basically never sleeping. It sounds horrible. Well, luckily for the Wright brothers, the mosquitoes soon dissipated to more normal levels. And this allows them to get some work done. They build a large shed that served as a combination house, workshop, and hangar. And they get to building their glider and getting it up and operational again. Now, in the off-season of 1900 to 1901, they had spent considerable time looking over data from other flyers. Data about the proper angle of the wing, especially, and how big wings should be. Essentially, they want to modify their wings to make them more efficient. And they have all this data on this. So they're doing it to fit best practices of other flyers. Well, as soon as they start flying in 1901, they realize something is seriously wrong with their glider because it's performing way worse than it had in the first year. And over the course of a few days, they come to realize that the data provided to them that they had based all their calculations on and built this new glider around are useless. And what they realize is what I had already pointed out, that just in a few weeks, they had spent more time in the air to truly test what worked best than everyone else combined. And so this data was just, was just not good. Specifically, there was this wind resistance coefficient that was way off and therefore the curvature of the wings that was recommended to them from Lilienthal, Langley and Chanute uh, was, was way off. And so their wings were at the wrong angle. And so they, you know, go back to the shop and they work on the glider, but this was not an easy fix. And Kitty Hawk was not an easy place to make these changes. They're in the middle of nowhere. They have no machining tools. They have nowhere where they can go to, you know, get mechanical parts or anything like that. And so it was very dispiriting to realize that they had gone backwards, not forward in the 10 months between the two trips to Kitty Hawk. And in fact, this is such a step backwards that they came close to despair with Wilbur at one point proclaiming, 
Not in a thousand years would man ever fly. At least that is according to Orville. Wilbur himself remembered that he said man wouldn't fly for another 50 years. In either case, it gets so bad, they start to think, you know, maybe we can't solve this problem. And I think that despair comes not just from what had happened, but from realizing that they had to do everything themselves. There, there was nothing that they were building on. No good data, no good designs. As Wilbur said, quote, we had to go ahead and discover everything ourselves. So after the summer of 1901, they go home in quite a funk. If they were going to have to do everything themselves, who knew how long that might take? Serious scientific efforts had been going on for decades at this point. And minor inquiries, you know, back to the time of Da Vinci and even before. And the Wright brothers were realizing that those efforts were useless, generated basically no good data. How much more successful could they really be expected to be? Okay, we'll leave it there for episode one. Tune in to episode two to hear how the brothers turn things around and, spoiler alert, discover how to fly. Until then, thank you for listening to How to Take Over the World. Oh!